Hello and welcome to the Frosted Takes podcast. I am John Rosenberg and I am honored today to be here with my guest, Jackson Frank. He is a part-time writer at The Athletic and Liberty Ballers covering the Sixers for both those publications. He also writes for The Step Back and is a colleague of mine over at the B-Ball Index. Jackson, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you today? I am doing well. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to come on and discuss a couple things. Um, I know you're a busy guy. So <laughs> um, what uh, we're looking to get into today is kind of looking at the Jimmy Butler trade. Um, you do cover the Sixers for a couple different places, so I wanted to get your takes on it. I know you're a fan, and um, I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate on it. And then um, I just want to give you a chance to talk about your your favorite team, the Blazers, since you don't really know right about them. Um, seem to be making a big offensive jump and want to see uh, what you have to say about it. So I'm, yeah, really going to open up here with letting you kind of just, uh, you know, say you're part of the your side of the argument on um, – why you love this Butler trade? Yeah, I mean, I think I think obviously you'll touch on it, and I I, I, I really like it, but I understand there are some risks. But uh, I I think for the most part, the the fact that Marco Fultz wasn't the player they kind of had envisioned in the early portion of the year as a as a dynamic pick and roll guard and a guy who can create his own shot in the half court uh, was really hurting their offense. And trading for a guy like Butler who can create his own shot of the pick and roll and isolation and things like that is it going to do uh, wonders for the for their offense? And in the same, in kind of a similar note, I, I really like the idea that it's going to push Fultz into a, a backup guard role where he's going to be able to thrive around around shooters and, and kind of have less pressure on him. Uh, he played; I thought Fultz played pretty well yesterday against against the Magic, uh, despite the loss for the Sixers. And then defensively, I think while while Covington might be a, a better defender overall, uh, I think Butler's better on the ball, and I think that's a really huge uh, weapon to have in the playoffs. We saw. Some of their downfall against the Celtics last year was uh, the fact that Covington isn't great on the ball. He's a better team defender and a guy who kind of muddies up the passing lanes and things like that. Jason Tatum, as, as we kind of know, it's been well documented, uh, got whatever he wanted against against Covington's on-ball defense, whereas you throw a guy like uh, Butler in there, he can go toe-to-toe with the Kyries and the, the Tatums and the Kawhis and uh, to a lesser extent the, the, the Giannis's or the Chris Middleton's uh, or the Old Depot's, guys like that. I shouldn't say to a lesser extent, to a different extent, I should say. But yeah, so I think that's that's a really huge key, and then uh, I think Butler's a pretty good off the ball player. Um, I, I think obviously he's been pretty ball dominant uh, throughout a lot of his time with with the Bulls and the and the Timberwolves. But uh, I don't think he's ever had a, a coach as good as Brett Brown, and he's never played with the type of talent, uh, the talents that uh, Simmons and Joel Embiid are. So I think that's really going to help. Um, I understand maybe there's some weird fits with the spacing and taking the ball to Ben Simmons' hands more. Um, which I sure, I'm sure you'll touch on a little bit in terms of your devil's advocate, devil's advocate argument. But I generally think uh, three top 30 players find a way to make it work. And I, I obviously they're their own one in this this big three era. But but I, but I really just think Butler's skill set is so important to to the playoffs. And um, I, I think this this signals kind of a, a win now move. And I I don't necessarily have an issue with it because sometimes you you dance around and try and trying to find the perfect moment to be really good. And uh, it's really tough to, to feel a title contender at all times. You look at teams like, or a team like the Thunder, who you kind of thought were, had it made in the shade back in 2012, and they never made the finals again with that big three. So, so I think it's just, it's a type of move that signals win now. And obviously Embiid and Simmons are going to continue to get better, but Butler gives them a third, a third piece that really pushes them over the top into that, finally into that kind of elite tier in, in the East. You know, like like you said, and I said, I'm I'm really playing devil's advocate here uh, <laughs> because I just want to present. I don't. I think it's just been undercovered in writing and video. Um, the downside or potential downside or risks that the Sixers are taking in this trade because they got a top ten player. And I joked around. I don't remember if I wrote this or said it to somebody, but as soon as that trade happened, I could hear Zach Lowe in my head saying, "If you can get Jimmy Butler for Covington, sorry, you do it a hundred out of a hundred times." And that's uh, <laughs> normally his stance, whether it's the Mel trade or um, Paul George trade or whatever, or the Kawhi trade. Um, and I get all of that. So the first thing I kind of want to address uh, is your last point there of the win now thing. So yeah, definitely signals a win now move, and I get it. And they're really chasing the beginning of the post LeBron East era, and that's fine. <laughs> in theory. But the thing that is different to me in this situation is if you look at um, the other similar moves, so if you look at the Paul George trade or the Kawhi Leonard trade, those two teams 
didn't have a path to getting better. They were capped out. They were locked into their current stars and they were only going to get older and worse, really, you know? So their only path, and they weren't good enough. They just weren't good enough. They couldn't beat a bad Cavs team. The Thunder just were trapped in a Western Conference that's just too stacked, and they didn't have a path forward. And the only thing that they could do is give up, you know, Cornerstone and DeRozan and take a lot of flack for it from a PR standpoint. You know, we said that that, um, the Thunder gave up nothing at the time, but in hindsight... You know, Oladipo is a younger player on a more better, a less expensive contract. So, but the, that was the only way for those teams to get better. We don't know yet what the Sixers' ceiling was going to be. They didn't hit it. They're all 22. And <laughs> they kind of pushed up their timeline, not unnecessarily, because, I mean, if you want to go for it, you know, who am I to blame you for trying to be competitive and win a championship? But, you know, we in theory, <clears throat> Embiid is in his second year. Simmons is in his second year. Markel Fultz is functionally a rookie. We didn't know yet what they were going to be. So their path forward, they had options for getting better. They had internal development as well as financial flexibility, which the financial flexibility really brings me to my next point. So I agree with you about the on-ball defense and the streaky shooting, but I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. So... Butler's definitely better on the ball. And you said, you know, you get into the highest levels of the playoffs and you want really like a one-on-one lockdown guy against the other team's best player, which you do and is true. But in terms of being a better team defender, you know, Butler can't do that on a possession-by-possession basis because of the fact that his offensive burden is just too high. So it's not his fault. Obviously, his talent level as a defender is quite high. But when you have to be the creator like he is, you just don't have the energy. You know, we see it with Anthony Davis, who if he could just play defense, he would win defense player of the year, but he just doesn't have that luxury. (laughs) And then in terms of the two of them at the heart of this deal, Covington and Butler, I know that Butler is the better player. It's pretty clear that Butler is a top 10 player. But in terms of all the, the advanced data that we have now on last year, they weren't really different. Last year, Butler was fourth in RPM, and Covington was eighth overall in the whole league. And, you know, you look at the data that we have at um, Basketball Index, um, Covington in POE, Covington was 94th percentile. PIPM, 98th percentile. RPM, 98th percentile. RAPM, 100th percentile. (laughs) Defensive PIPM, 100th percentile. Defensive RPM, 99th percentile. Defensive RAPM, 100th percentile. Butler's numbers are also in the high 90s for all of those categories as well. So there really doesn't seem, in terms of advanced analytics, um, much of a difference. You want to start looking at, you know, like wins added, POE, 94th percentile versus 99th percentile. PIPM, 98th percentile versus 96th percentile. RPM, 99th percentile versus 98th percentile. RAPM, 100th percentile versus 97th percentile. The grading data that we have at Basketball Index, Perimeter D, Covington, A-, Butler, A-, Perimeter Shooting, Covington, A-, Butler, B. And the shooting is really, and people have addressed this, um, the shooting now on Philadelphia, if you look at their playoff roster from last year, they have now lost six of their, or four of their six best shooters um, from that team if you uh, discount McConnell because he wasn't taking at least one. <laughs> so they've lost, um, sorry, I'm trying to do this. I can't find it. It's um, Bellinelli, Il- Ilyasova, Saric, and Covington. They have now lost. And if Reddick leaves in free agency, which is an issue I'll get into, if Reddick leaves in, def- leaves in free agency, that's five out of the six best shooters that they have for a team that already has spacing issues because of Fultz and Simmons. And then you just get into the money. So if we rewind to before this season started, and Covington's extension was kicking in. He's making $46.9 million over the next four years. And Jimmy Butler, his last uh, salary this year, and then the first three years of his new extension, if we assume it, is five years, $190 million. Over the next four seasons, Jimmy Butler will make $125.6 million. That is nearly an $80 million difference over the mm-hmm. And I don't know if Jimmy Butler and Robert Covington are $80 million apart. Do you think that? No, no, I, I don't think they're $80 million apart at all. Um, I, we kind of talked about, I think, before 
before we started that uh, Covington's on one of the best best contracts in the NBA as a top the top fifty guy. Um, I think uh, I mean you recite all those stats, and that's that's things that every every Sixers fan has been uh, preaching to people who didn't like Covington for for seven months now or, or a year now. Um, yeah, I mean I think those are those are all really good points. Uh, I, I think to an extent, the, the hope with with the on court fit is that Butler can adjust his game a little bit. Uh, he's he's a pretty good catch-and-shoot guy. I don't remember the exact numbers, but Mike O'Connor of The Athletic kind of did a little bit more of an analysis of their fit. And I think he said something like 37 to 38% on catch-and-shoot threes over the last three to four years. So I think if Butler can lean into more of a, of a three-point shooting role rather than that mid-range game he really prefers, that could do some wonders for him. And then I, I think to an extent in terms of the, the advanced numbers, uh, obviously they're pretty close, and I think it's fair to say that uh, Covington might be a better defender um, overall. There's there's a certain level of uh, just I not not eye test, but just the idea that Butler can create his own shot better and and, and defend in the playoffs uh, against the best players. I think that that's really important. That's not something necessarily the the composite um, their all encompassing defensive metrics can can show the idea that a guy's a better on ball defender than an off ball defender. Um, but yeah, I mean, you make, you make, you make some good points about, about the fit there. Um, as I said, I, I understand and I acknowledge it's not without risk. Um, uh, in terms of the, the contract situation, um, the, the athletic had a ton of really, really interesting rapid fire kind of reaction stuff from, from the Sixers perspective and, and Derek Bodner, um, who's kind of the lead man over there for the Sixers, uh, with the athletic, uh, he broke down, uh, their cap situation. And I think they still have. I think he laid out. They have the if they if they potentially move on from Fultz, um, which I don't think has been reported or anything of like that. But there are some rumblings that uh, his like ten million dollar cap hold. Um, might, they might look to move on to that, or that just speculation, I guess, is the proper phase, just because that would open up. Um, I think. Uh, Almost, I think it opened up a, a 25% max or almost a 30% max, which is projected to be 27 million or 32 million this summer, according to, according to Bonner's article that uh, from Saturday or Sunday. So, so I think there's some financial issues, but I but I think um, overall, I, I just think it, it was the right move. I, as I said, I I understand it's it's not a not just a total home run move, um, but in terms of kind of the the idea that. Uh, that they they don't have path to improvement. I think, I think the, I don't think that was the issue. I, I don't think it was necessarily they didn't think they could get better, but the the worry was that even if they did get better, it might not result in a title contender, um, especially because it seems like Fultz has a long way to go in terms of reaching his his ceiling, and it's tough to tough to see that happening on a team with two top thirty players who are going to win fifty to fifty five games most years. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you said, those are all really valid concerns um but i think there's a certain level of intangible value that that butler brings as a half court creator and, and his skill set is really important while covington is a great player and so so is sarich uh, i just think his ability to create his own shot on a team that didn't really have any of those guys uh is going to be really important because we i've, I've seen enough games where the things things kind of stagnate and their only really so- real source of offense late is mb post-ups and uh mb a brilliant player but that that can't work all the time especially against a team like boston who has Proven to have two really stingy post defenders in Al Horford and Aaron Baines. Um, so you throw another guy in there who can create his own shot from the perimeter. I think that's really valuable. Valuable. Um, but yeah, as I keep saying during this little uh, spiel, I, I I acknowledge your point. I just think the the benefits outweigh those risks, but those risks are certainly valid, and they they have a chance to to derail what what could be a really really fun uh, trio. Right. So I hope I didn't uh, kind of misspeak before. So I wasn't saying that they didn't have a path forward i was saying that in the thunder and raptors case they didn't really have oh a no path. no yeah I, I i totally agree i i i think they do have a path forward i was just saying that i think that maybe some of the worry was that even the path forward wasn't going to mm-hmm. lend itself to a to a title con- title contender which is kind of been the whole goal of this uh four-year uh process right so and I and I do get all that. So um, the one thing I I kind of rattled off all those stats and how they're <laughs> um, quite similar. So the one the one place where they are exceptionally different is in the uh, created points over exception data 
at the VWL index where um, Butler is in, well, at least last year, Butler was in the 98th percentile and Covington was in the 44th percentile. So basically, you're right. And what I think that this all came down to is that they didn't have a bucket getter and they went and got a bucket getter. And I understand that. And it's what teams and GMs do every single time. And you go get the best player and you make a big three. And uh, it's just kind of how team building is viewed. But you and I, so this kind of leads into um, Sarge as well. So let me just uh, talk about Sarge for a second. And I actually know that you kind of just agree with this. So, you and I kind of talked about this and I can't remember who else it was, but it was just in a Twitter exchange before the season started about how uh, Sarge is criminally underappreciated. And it's because he doesn't really stand out in any category. But if you look at uh, the Rockets method of team building, they had two stars and then everybody around them didn't have a weakness. They didn't have an exceptional strength, but nobody around them had a weakness. And if you give your opponent at the highest levels either a guy to sag off of because he can't shoot or somebody that they'll just keep on screening until he finally gets switched on to Steph Curry or James Harden or LeBron James and he's just going to get roasted every single time, that guy can't be on the floor in the conference finals or the finals because it's just to, if you have a weakness, the other team at that level is going to just keep going at it until you can stop it. And the point is that that guy won't be able to stop it. And that's Sarge. Sarge is crafty. Sarge can shoot. Sarge is smart. Sarge knows where to. Be. Sarge knows where to be on defense. He doesn't really have a weakness. And by the way, I absolutely love the fit next to Towns. So that'll be exciting. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think I don't know if I tweeted it, but I, but I, I want, I want, uh, want the Minnesota to get a get a craftier or savvy offensive coach to to really unlock that that front court of Covington, Sarge, and, and Towns. But in terms of Sarge, I think the one. The one area he does have a really big issue is perimeter defense. Uh, it was, I didn't think it was as bad last year. Maybe I wasn't watching closely enough, but this year it's been been pretty porous. A lot on switches. The Sixers uh, implemented a switch everything scheme this year for the most part. Last year it was it wasn't quite that way. Um, I think they were a little more selective with that, and Sarge was kind of getting uh, mercilessly, unmercilessly ro- uh, roasted a lot on switches this year. So that's his biggest weakness. I think some of the worry might have been that at the highest level he would just kind of get exposed and targeted and uh, his ball handling and perimeter shooting wouldn't uh, and rebounding all that wouldn't be um, as valuable. So I'd say that's his one big weakness. And I think that might be some of the reason he, he, um, he was traded, but yeah, I, I think, I think Sarge is a really fun player. And part of the issue was his, he didn't, I think, I don't think his skill set was fully un, unlocked um, just because Simmons was really ball dominant and, and be like to have the ball a lot, uh, pretty crafty passer from the elbows and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really like Sarge, but I do think the one worry that was really starting to rear its head, especially this year, um, was he's just kind of slow in, in, uh, to react in terms of quick movement and stuff, especially on the perimeter. But, but yeah, I think he's pretty solid on the interior and uh, is a sneaky good uh, rim protector. Not rim protector, uh, excuse me, rebounder. I, I know the numbers don't back it up um, exactly. But, um, but yeah, I, I think for them, I understand that, but I do think the one big weakness for Sarge was his perimeter defense, and that's kind of the one that, uh, can kind of derail uh, series or teams. Do you know why uh, they kind of went to more switch everything this year? Uh, if if I'm correct, I uh, I so I think so. Lloyd Pierce was kind of the the mastermind behind their defense last year. And obviously, he's with Atlanta now, and I think their new guy, his name or not new coach, but he was already on staff. Uh, Billy Billy Lang, uh, yeah, Billy Lang, um, system with the Sixers. I think he's there. He's their uh, he's their defensive coordinator uh, to say now. I don't know exactly why he, he switched to uh, why they made that switch. Um, I, I think part of it was that they they maybe they they trusted Embiid a little more to switch. He's been fabulous on the perimeter, um, except for when he has to close out, which is kind of his only big weakness. Um, for some reason, he can't seem to uh, have a disciplined closeout to save his life. But uh, anyways, it's kind of a tangent, but. I don't know why they did it, but I but I definitely noticed more more switching, um, and I think I, and I, I tweeted out maybe oh, two weeks ago that uh, I don't necessarily know if they have the personnel to do that, and I think Sarge was a reason why they couldn't uh, switch everything. Um, but I think I think they thought with guys like Embiid and Simmons and Covington um, and even Fultz to a lesser extent, uh, they thought they had four four guys or so who could kind of switch across three or four positions and 
and wreak havoc and not have to worry about fighting through screens and, and things like that. So I think that was part of it. Um, but it, it seems like they just have too many negative defenders um, with Shamit and Reddick, um, even Chandler. Not, not that Chandler's a super negative defender, but he's definitely not quite the explosive athlete he was before a few injuries um, from years past. But but I think it was just the idea that um, they had a lot of guys who had the the frame and the and the length to to switch across a few few positions, and they they wanted to uh, to kind of to uh, change it up a little bit just because they struggled defensively uh, against the Celtics in that in that series last year. Okay, um, that's a really good insight. Thanks. Um, that's that's interesting um, because and that, that's just speculation. I'm not positive that's why they changed it. That's just me kind of uh, assuming maybe why they made that change, but I, no, I don't have any. Um, inside knowledge or anything like that. But that would be interesting to kind of figure out exactly what the philosophy behind that was. Right, because what were they in defense last year? Do you uh, I want to say third. Um, right. Let me double check. Uh, well, it, it was, I, my point is it was high, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if it ain't broke. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they were third. Wow. They were they were third last year uh, right. in, in uh, defensive rating. Right, so, you know, I mean, how much better are you going to get from third? But, <laughs> well, I mean, hey, they, they have their job and I don't, so they probably know. <laughs> Um, and I think I think part of it was just trying to be better better uh, equipped for the playoffs. Um, yeah, kind I of the think, think, mentality. Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, they, they had enough confidence that they'd be effective in in the regular season. It's going to take time. Um, as I mean, sw- changing your scheme um, is a lot to ask for guys. Uh, there's been a few breakdowns, or more than a few breakdowns, about just kind of are we supposed to switch there? We're not supposed to switch. Um, I take notes in every game, and I feel like at least two or three times a game, I'm writing. Da, 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 miscommunication on switch open three or open layup or something like that so um i'd imagine maybe sometime around 30 to 40 games in they'll they'll kind of be rocking and rolling especially with uh the vaunted three-headed monster of butler simmons and Embiid. um but yeah i mean i understand i understand your point but i, I just think their their goal was to be really good in the playoffs and it wasn't quite as uh, potent in the playoffs it's just interesting to me that they started off the season making the conscious decision to start Fultz knowing that they were towing this line of not really maximizing the now, but kind of preparing themselves for a future where Fultz um, develops and Simmons has developed and then really pouncing on um, the three of them being in their primes and 13 games into the season. They're like, eh, we're just going to trade for Jimmy Butler. Actually. Well, and that's, that's part of um, the issue is that I think I, I didn't really have an issue with starting Fultz. If, if the idea was that they need to figure out, what this long-term group of Simmons, Embiid, and Fultz is going to look like, I totally get it. Um, and so if you're okay to sacrifice a few wins in, in the name of kind of letting Fultz get some confidence and develop alongside those guys and see what that fit's going to be like, um, totally fine. But then, yeah, I think – I don't know I don't know if – I don't think it's necessarily a panic move to trade for a top-10 guy, <laughs> but I definitely think there was a little bit shift in ideology in terms of what they were looking for because trading for Butler is clearly a win-now move, especially for a guy who's been a little mercurial and is on – uh, is on the, an expiring contract. So it was just, there's, it's just a little bit troubling in terms of the, not the deal itself, but maybe what the deal suggests in terms of um, kind of the idea that they were, they're all in on faults. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we're not really in on that anymore. You know? So I can't remember who tweeted it, but somebody was saying that uh, no issue with the trade, but it's kind of concerning maybe what that suggests moving forward. Right. And I, I get that. And I uh, do agree. And the other thing, about moving forward is so Paul George and Kawhi trades were seen as risks because it was, Oh, are they going to leave? We still don't know about Kawhi, but I'm willing to work here under the assumption that Butler stays because it seems like he's going to, or at least from what the reporting is now. And I don't think that they would have made that trade. I, I, I think they know, I think they knew before. I think they knew that it, it, it would get done. So let's assume he stays. So we're looking at, when he takes the court on opening night in 2019, he's going to be 30 years old. And on the first year of a five-year, $190 million contract. Now, maybe they have some partial guarantee on the last year or whatever, so they have some protection. But it's an average annual value of $38 million. So we have not seen yet what happens to these guys on the end of these Supermax deals because it's too new. And I kind of have a feeling that this is going to end up like the 2016 offseason in hindsight, where apparently the Bulls outsmarted the entire market because they sat out 2016 while everyone else went crazy. But all these deals that we saw, Dang and Mozgov and um, why am I blanking on this? Uh, Biombo, everybody got paid. 
and Noah, and they're all Batross contracts. Evan and, Turner, My- Myers Leonard, yeah. a couple of them for, for my beloved uh, Blazers. Yeah, so – and but Turner, Turner's been solid this year, I will say. But anyways, I digress. Um, and now everyone knows that's never going to happen again. Teams aren't going to spend money like that again, and it was a mistake. We have not seen yet what the tail end of these deals are going to look like. I mean, the idea to me of John Wall being whatever it is, like 33 years old, making $42 million with all of his knees issues is terrifying. So we haven't seen yet how James Harden, Chris Paul, uh, Russell Westbrook, John Wall, Blake Griffin, we haven't seen the end of these contracts yet, but I'm assuming it's going to be bad. And I get you can't replace them, so you have to pay them now and you just deal with it at the end of it. But I just think that once we see the end of these contracts for the first go around, because we haven't yet, that teams are going to shy away from this in the future. There's no way that teams are going to keep giving 30-year-olds $190 million, where you're 35, making $43 million. And the cap's only going to go up. This is the numbers from this year. They're only going to be making you know $43 million when you're 35. And Jimmy Butler has played five years under Tibbs. So no one has more miles on his tires than Jimmy Butler, and he already has injury problems. I'm just like, I mean, yeah, I just keep coming back to the Covington contract, and he's only a year younger, but he doesn't have that mile. I mean, it's it's an eighty million. It's such a difference, and they forfeited the opportunity cost of having the extra cap space this summer when they could have just signed him outright. And I know it's risky because Paul George stayed, and the Raptors are winning every game, and I get all that. But I mean, they could have chased someone else too. I mean. I get it. You go get the top ten guy, but I mean, I mean, do you do you have reservations about that contract? Yeah, no, for no, for sure. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think with most of these things, all all the points you're bringing up are totally valid. I think the thing I keep coming back to is just the the risk to acquire him was just was just worth it. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I, I think there's certainly a little bit of uh, hesitancy there. A- at the worst, the idea is hopefully that either you're able to to get ahead of the curve and, and trade Butler just before um, to a team that's, that's kind of in a desperation mode. But then the idea that ideally Simmons and Embiid are kind of entering their prime when you still have two really good players um, and you find a way to add another guy, because I, like I said, I think they, don't, they would still have like 30 million or something in, in cash space roughly um, depending on exactly the, what they do. I mean, they have, they have the path to 30 million or so uh, is the way I should phrase it. So uh, yeah. So I, I think the idea is if they can sign it, sign a guy with less mileage on his tires to kind of form a, almost a big four. And then you have those, those two guys, Simmons and Embiid plus, plus this new guy, maybe they, they sign and then Butler uh, and you get two, you get this year plus two more years, then, then maybe you can work around that. But I, I, I can't remember where it was from, but I did see that um, there are rumblings that maybe the Sixers are going or the Sixers and, and Butler have not talked, but the, he might sign for a little less than the the max unit only be four years but so that that's that's the one thing that i i have seen that is a little encouraging like i said i've been trying to find the source i know it was a credible source but i saw it but there's there's maybe some some hope or some some rumors that they may be able to just make that deal four years and and not for the full max um so i think that's that's the hope but yeah i mean i i think there's certainly valid reasons for a guy who's played a ton of minutes and missed a few and missed 15 20 games the last few years each each season that uh, this contract might look really bad in, in two and a half years if they, if they re-sign him. Um, but yeah, as I said, I just think you, you go and get the star when you can get him, but um, there's certainly a little bit of, there's certainly some reservations that are completely uh, warranted. Right. So I'm actually hoping to get a piece up on NBA Canada soon. I submitted a couple drafts. I've been going back and forth and hopefully it's up soon um, because I was looking at the, cap ramifications for both teams and um the thing that you were talking about earlier where they might be able to get up to about 30 million dollars is um bobby marks actually tweeted that out too how if they move on from fultz mm-hmm. um, yeah so i was looking so i was looking into this um and if they don't they renounce everyone except for mcconnell they can be around like 20 million dollars which then mm-hmm. put them in an interesting situation with reddick and they need his shooting for sure um but that's its own thing um but yeah so if they move on from full thing get to like 28 29 million dollars but you're at that point salary dumping markel volts which i just do not you're basically you would have to be they're sending him out to a team that i can either absorb it which someone will be able to do that um or you have to get back zero dollars of guaranteed salary 
and you're not going to just give them away. So you'd basically be sending him off for future picks. And I just cannot envision the Sixers doing that. I just don't see it as a very likely, like you, you put it, you put it correctly. They have a path to about $30 million in cap space, but I just find it so incredibly unlikely that they would actually basically just dump him. Yeah. So, so I think the idea there is now, so now he's in the second unit. It's kind of his thing. The idea there is maybe he gets time to shine. He's not in such a pressure packed uh, situation and, and he plays well. Uh, and I, I think this, this move to acquire Butler kind of signals a win now idea. And as I've said, I, I have my reservations about Philadelphia being the ideal place for him to kind of reach his ceiling. Um, so maybe, maybe rather, maybe there's a way that they can show that they, they are in this win now mode. And while they still believe in Fultz, they just are, they're looking, they're looking for a win now piece. Maybe they trade him for kind of maybe an expiring contract. that can still give him some valuable um, minutes or something like that. But yeah, I, I totally understand the reservations about, trade uh just dumping a guy um your number one pick that you traded two two draft picks two first round picks for just just for the chance to sign their max guy which might not even come to fruition so yeah i i think there's definitely some valid hesitancy there but i think there's a way to kind of spin it that's less about oh we're trying to get off this guy and more about he just doesn't quite fit our timeline anymore if that if that makes sense no it does make sense and i guess my my bigger point is um i can't see a scenario where they trade him where the trade itself is a dump right so like they would spin it as he doesn't really fit um our team philosophy or he doesn't it's not a good on-court fit him and simmons have too many shooting issues and it, it just doesn't work so you know from a maximum team building perspective we should just flip him for you know guys like trevor Ariza or robert covington or just like three and d wings and that I understand, but I'm just saying that that is what the trade would probably be. I can't envision a scenario where they make a trade where they're just getting off of his salary instead of bringing in someone that would actually help them on the court. I just can't see them dumping the first pick. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, I, de- I definitely agree with that. I think it would be for, for an expiring contract who can, can shoot and play some defense on the wing. Um and as you said, you said a guy like Trevor Reza, and I'm sure there'll be some some other guys that maybe present themselves um, moving right. forward. But yeah, but I I think it it's not going to be something where it's like, oh, they got great value for him. It's going to be one of those things. Well, it's kind of a sunk cost um, at that point for them. You know, I think I think they envisioned Fultz as their third piece, and it's looking less and less likely that's the case. Um, I I still think he can be a a high level player. Um, Somewhere, I just don't know if that's going to be in Philly, given all the the roster construction as is and kind of their their timeline in terms of where they are uh, as a as a title contender. Right, and I I do agree with what you're saying. Um, so and I'm I'm rooting for him because this is just the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And uh, yeah, it's just he was the number one pick for a reason. He he was the proper number one pick at the time, and I I have no idea. Nobody knows what happened, and I. I, I I'm rooting for him. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, I, I tweeted something out. I mean, I just I've seen I've seen uh, it was the wrong pick and all that, and uh, I just think yeah, it's I, I just think it's such a such a revisionist history thing to say it wasn't the right pick. I maybe I was a little too harsh on the idea that he was the undisputed pick. I get that a lot of people like Lonzo, but I thought at best it was a two man race between Lonzo and, and Fultz for that first pick, um, and Lonzo just didn't quite make sense given they already had. Uh, a, a kind of guy like him in his mold and Ben Simmons. Obviously, I didn't know what they had in Simmons, but it was tough to to suggest they should get another guy who's long and athletic and, and struggles to to shoot. Um, obviously, it, lo- it looks like Ball is playing better, but he's not quite the pick and roll partner you need because he's not really a pull up shooter. Right, and I don't know of anyone who at the time didn't have Fultz one. Honestly, I can't off the top of my head. I really can't think of it. And and like you said, it really was an argument between Fultz and Ball. And if you're sitting here saying like, "Oh, Tatum should have went number one," you weren't saying that <laughs> in June of 20. <laughs> like you're just lying if you're gonna sit here and tell me that you were saying that then. Um, but we're kind of getting off track here. One last thing on this: <laughs> more of a thought exercise as opposed to um looking at the trade. But if Robert Covington hit the open market, what do you think his average annual salary would be? Oh, hit the open market right now. I would say, I mean, somewhere around eight. 18 to 20 million. I might have to look at kind of 
similar guys. I mean, it was tough to think on top of my head, but I think that'd be totally fair value. Uh, no, I'm not putting you on the spot here, but yeah, yeah, but he, I mean, he's he's 28. I want to say he's 28. 28, and he's not a guy who relies a ton of athleticism. He's offensively, he's going to do most of his damage. He's a spot up shooter. Defensively, he's going to make quick rotations and use his length. So I think four years, 80 million, something like that would be pretty would be pretty reasonable. I, I think it obviously depends on your the team you have and, and whatnot. But uh, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's too much. I've never been good with this this type of, <laughs> this type of stuff. Uh, trying to estimate the player's value on the market, but I would I wouldn't have really any issue giving him four years seventy two or four years eighty million because he's a he's a top fifty player. Right. So I think four years eighty million is the 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 lowest I think that he would end up getting. Honestly, <laughs> I was kind of looking at it. I I I brought this up to my friend the other night, and I just off the top of my head was like, oh, I bet he would get like twenty five million dollars. Maybe want to get that. But so who who's better, Robert Covington or Otto Porter? I, was, I just it's a twenty five million. I just thought about that. Uh, I would still go Porter, um, okay. and he's he's making twenty seven million, right? Twenty six point six. Yeah, so I would say, and I think some a lot of people have that as a little bit of an overpay. So I would I would say maybe twenty three mil would probably be a good cap for for Covington. He might make more, but I think people might anything beyond maybe twenty three million might start to look like it's a little bit of a an overpay for him. All right, um, that's fine. So twenty to twenty five. The other one that I I was looking at was um. When when Oladipo got his extension, so this is before he ever played one second for the Pacers, because now he's probably underpaid. But when he got the extension, it was four eighty four, so he's getting twenty one million dollars a year, and it was really just off the theory of Oladipo being like a pretty good defender, and then like a thirty five six percent three point shooter, and Robert Covington, mm-hmm. now a first team defensive player who is um, on his last. 634 attempts. He has shot 37% from deep. And the reason I say um, his last 634 attempts is because there is a study over at Fansided, I think it's Nylon Calculus, that you need 753-point attempts to know the true marksmanship of a shooter. So, you know, everyone likes to brag on Lonzo, but, you know, or, or Fultz. So, you know, once they shoot 750 attempts, we'll know. So over his past 634 attempts, Covington has shot 37%. So we're pretty close to a verified reality where Covington is like a high 30s three-point shooter. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, so it was 630, that's just a lot. That's just this year and last year. And I think that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a much more fair thing to value because every other year he's playing for really bad teams with, with not a lot of uh, talented ball handlers have to set him up. So, yeah, I mean, we're – we're getting to the point where we can just assume that he's a he's a high volume, um, pretty good three point shooter who's also going to absolutely uh, destroy teams off the ball with his defense and, and stuff. But um, but yeah, I, mean, I think I think a lot of people like to kind of value Covington for what he isn't, and uh, that, that's pretty unfair to him. But uh, what he is is a really good player and a really valuable contract. And from Minnesota, from Minnesota's perspective, I think they got a really really good player who can kind of just fit fit in. Um, with what they have there with Cat, um, and then obviously Sarge is, is Sarge. We kind of talked about earlier, but but yeah, I, I think I think a lot of a lot of fans um, were, were understood the deal and, and were, were excited about getting Jimmy Butler. But there was definitely some some tough sentimental value to to lose Covington and, and Sarge, especially especially Covington, who was kind of an OG uh, process guy. <laughs> process guy, yeah, I understand that, um, and I do love. Uh... These two guys over in Minnesota, hopefully uh, they start running a better offensive scheme. I think there's a lot of potential there, but um, I digress. So if I had a sponsor, this is where I would input a commercial, but I do not. So moving right along to our discussion on the Portland Trailblazers, your um, Twitter banner is like seven different pictures of Brandon Roy, so everybody knows. Um, so a couple of things that I want to hit on here, and I'm really just going to let you kind of uh, you know, inform inform our listeners of what you're seeing. But just to kind of lay the foundation for our conversation here, um, last year Portland won 49 games with a 2.6 point margin, and this year their point margin is 8.4, which is the third best in the league behind only Milwaukee and Golden State, and they're right ahead of Toronto in terms of where the improvement is really coming from. It would be offensively. Last year they were sixth in defensive rating. They're still sixth this year, but offensively they've improved from 13th to 4th. In addition, one other thing that I've been seeing is that John Collins, pretty big year. Zach, Zach, Zach Collins. 
Oh, great. Sorry. Um, I'm like obsessed with the Hawks. So I just always have John Collins on my mind. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Zach Collins. Um, thank you. Yeah, Zach Collins, really good start to the year. So yeah, if you just want to speak to, you know, what you're seeing offensively, um, what what Zach Collins has been able to to improve in his second year, anything else, you know, that you're seeing, uh, just go for it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the biggest thing is they, they added some shooting uh, this summer. They didn't have a ton of shooting off the bench last year, I, I want to say. Um, added Nick Stauskas, who's shooting 39% this year. Uh, added Seth Curry, who uh, obviously is is kind of in that same same uh, vein. His, his brother and his dad's uh, really good shooters. Um, uh, Curry shooting 50% this year, obviously a really small sample, but shot 42.5%. Uh, in 16, 17 before his injury. So I think that's really, that's been really key. And they, they're, um, another big key is that they're letting Evan Turner be more of a, a point forward rather than kind of a spot up here next to Lillard and, and McCollum. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I feel like he's playing a lot of minutes with, with, uh, with Stauskas and Curry and those guys are just kind of spotting up and, and, uh, Turner has room to kind of do his thing, operate in the, in the mid post and, and things like that. So I think that's been key. And I mean, obviously, their their assist percentage is still super low. Um, their offense is a lot more predicated on player movement rather than ball movement. Their their last or their second to last, excuse me, in um, assist percentage, they were last when I when I checked a couple of days ago. Uh, the Knicks have surpassed them for that title. Um, <laughs> they were their last this year. I want to say they were last uh, a season ago as well. Yeah, they were last by almost four percent assist percentage. So it's a lot of player movement. I think that had some worries, but I think they just didn't quite have the, the shooting personnel to kind of run a lot of guys off screens and, and cuts and things like that. So I think that's really helped. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, Collins has made a jump. There were some, some concerns when Ed Davis went to Brooklyn that Collins wouldn't be as effective just because uh, those guys were really good together. Together on the court, um, Collins and Davis were plus 6.4. Without Davis on the court, Collins was minus 13.1. So there's definitely some hesitancy there that he might not be as effective, but yeah, he's taken a, a, a big leap. Um, he was really good offensively last year or not offensively, excuse me, defensively uh, was pretty, pretty nimble on the perimeter. Um, really good on the interior. I think uh, I don't know exactly the sample, but I think he had like the best defensive field goal percentage um, uh, within six feet last year on a small, smallish sample, but uh, proved to be a pretty good rim protector. But, but the jump this year has been offensively, uh, He's shooting 54% from the field after shooting 40% last year, 36% from three, uh, 37% almost, excuse me, from three after 31% last year. And he just looks a little more comfortably clearly put on some weight, uh, finishing a lot better at the rim last year between on shots between zero and three feet, 62%. This year he's uh, almost up to 77%. So I think that that's really helped. He's not, he's not quite shooting as many uh, kind of long, Long twos, I think, has really helped. He's shooting more, shooting more of those shots in the paint, which is which is really uh, encouraging to see. Um, but yeah, he he's looked really good. Uh, it, it like absolutely fantastic when he gets minutes, and uh, it's been nice because I think Yusuf Nurkic has looked pretty good too. Um, there were there were some calls that maybe Collins just start, and I think maybe I've made those those calls at times. But Nurkic just looked good, and that's really helped solidify their front court. But yeah, I think those those are the big points. Is they just have. Uh, Collins has made a jump, and they have a couple of shooters off the bench that can allow Evan Turner to kind of be a, a primary facilitator for them in the second unit, um, which means Dame and CJ can play more of their minutes together because he's not the big change rotation, rotationally has been that Dame and CJ aren't staggering as much, um, whereas that was a kind of a big a big thing last year uh, and, and a couple, couple of years before that, and um, the numbers weren't great for CJ. Um, but then again, he was playing a lot of it with with bench bench uh, teammates, which is always a little bit tough and skews the numbers. But I'd say those are the big the big differences this year that I've seen. I admittedly I haven't been able to watch every game. I probably caught uh, eight or nine of their fourteen games. But um, but yeah, they definitely look better. We'll see. They they just dropped the their first game of a six game road trip this year uh, or uh, yesterday, excuse me. Um, they played most of their games at home so far, so that's really helped there their quick 10 and four start or 10 and three start before yesterday. So uh, yeah, big test coming up in terms of if they can uh, carry that over the road, struggled last night, but um, that was mostly because LeBron decided to be uh, <laughs> LeBron. Yes. Although Monzo and Ingram showed, showed their defensive chops last night. Yeah. Out. Yeah, no, they, they did. Yeah. Monzo was fantastic against Lillard. I think uh, Lillard was only eight of 23. 
um, from the floor, which obviously sometimes that's just a little bit of bad luck, but Lonzo is definitely hounding him on, on pick and rolls and things like that. So it was definitely an impressive showing from, from those guys. But, but yeah, I think, I think it hurts when, when you get that type of effort from those guys and then LeBron nearly drops a 40 point triple double, um, and looks, en- and looks engaged defensively, um, which isn't always the case for him. It's, it's tough to win that, win that game, but, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely kind of see. We got five more games. They got, they got five more games on the road trip. So we'll, we'll definitely know more about them uh, 19 games in than we did uh, 13. It should be interesting to, really interesting to see if they can keep it up. Because I know I even, as a fan, I was a little down on them. They lost Napier and they lost Davis uh, and Connaughton. And so I was a little worried about some of their depth. But the signings have been good so far. And uh, the offense looks improved. But we'll kind of see what, what happens on this, this six-game road trip. Right. So that actually was um, one specific that I wanted to ask you about. So the switch um, from Napier to Seth Curry, how how do you feel like it's been panning out so far? Do you think um, Seth has been giving the same quality minutes as Napier was doing last year or a little better, a little worse? I know he's injured or he just got injured, but yeah. So I think I think the big thing is that they're kind of different, at least in the way I've seen them used. I think Curry's been more used as a guy who they run off a lot of screens and, and things like that uh, and while they let Evan Turner handle the ball, uh, whereas Napier is kind of a, a more of a ball-dominant player. Um, so I think that, that's a big difference. But I think he's been perfectly capable. Um, Curry, that is, he gets 17 minutes a night for them off the bench, not really doing a ton inside the arc, but he's hitting 50% of his, his threes. So uh, that's kind of what they signed him up for. Running a lot of stuff off, off screens, like I said. Um, and the Blazers are... Per basketball reference, they're 14.6 points better with him on the floor, Curry. So I think that that is uh, always a nice number. Whereas I thought Napier was a little more of a a ball handle. He could shoot the three pretty well last year. He shot 37.5%, or 37.6, excuse me. Um, but I thought he was kind of more of a guy that handled the ball and and uh, led those second units as a distributor. Um, but I think the roles have been different, but I think Curry's been been pretty solid in his, in his fit, especially kind of empowering. Uh, Turner to do his thing as a guy who's not because he can't because Turner's not much of a shooter as as most people know but um, yeah there hasn't really been any any big drop off between those between those two guys okay um, would you have paid Nurkic that's that's the tough question um, I I don't know um, I think he's been pretty solid this year um, and obviously 12 million a year for four years isn't some ludicrous contract for a guy who's been pretty productive and is um, it's kind of their anchor in the back line defensively. Um, but obviously he has his severe limitations as a, as a defender in space and an offensive player who doesn't have a lot of, doesn't have a ton of post moves and doesn't have a ton of range, which I think hurts. So I, I think I, I probably would pay him just because I think I'm kind of the believer that making the playoffs um, or being competitive has a lot of value in a smaller market like Portland. Whereas if you went to Collins, who might not quite might not quite be ready for thirty minutes a night, uh, it would have been tough to make the playoffs, and obviously it's still going to be tough. But um, but but I, I think I would pay him, um, and I, I didn't have any issue with twelve million a year, like I said, a couple minutes ago. So um, I understand people who didn't want to pay him, but I think that would have kind of signaled a rebuild, and especially during Lillard McCombs prime, that's a little bit tough to swallow, um, and if it doesn't signal a rebuild it places a lot of emphasis on Collins making a jump um which was it would it was tough to see him doing this well I mean obviously he was a good defender last year but was pretty pretty clearly a negative overall um I know rookies are usually that way but um it would have been tough to kind of justify that if you want to remain competitive which I think the Bledger did want to do yeah I uh I understand what you're saying it's it's um a really interesting idea surrounding center contracts because you could get a pretty good uh, facsimile to Nurkic for probably a fraction of the cost, but you can't get anyone as good as him if he just walks away because of uh, just the way the salary cap um, and the CBA is structured. So um, it's just difficult. You can't replace a guy that you lose once you're over the cap. And even though they Mm -hmm. can get someone, you know, if they want to avoid the luxury tax or whatever, that's one thing. But, you know, if they just let them leave and they get, I mean, I don't know, whoever for, four million dollars a year and it's not that much of a drop off but you know in the western conference that much of a drop off just took you from home court in the first round to facing the warriors in the first round and that's just you know <laughs> not uh the best scenario so it is um an interesting team building philosophy yeah i was okay with it 
for it's not an albatross he got you know pretty probably fair money he's not really like a bucket getter um but he's pretty good defensive anchor and um you know if you're just going to be relying on um again you know if you go back to kind of the the rockets method here you know just get the two superstars and then just put solid everything around them not that Nurkic is really like a stretch five but Capella's not so you know if CJ and Dame can get you enough buckets and then everyone else around you is just kind of switching or playing quality defense they have enough you know with enough shooters fighting Seth um uh, some and like you said um small market it is important to make the playoffs so if they just let him leave it kind of would have been a rebuild and dame isn't dame already like 28 yeah i think he i want he might be 29 i want i want to check for sure but i mean he was a four-year college guy yeah so um and he's in his seventh year seventh year one dude yeah seven wow uh crazy um i remember yeah (laughs) Yeah, i mean i was i was 13 when he was drafted holy crap uh yeah he's he's 28 um <laughs> yeah so he's 28 he'll he'll be 28 all year his birthday's in july so um yeah i mean he's he's squarely in his prime and seems to get a little bit better every year um this year the big thing is uh he's finishing around the rim a lot a lot better um at least last time i checked uh well ignore me he's only shooting 55 which is basically the same as last year so yeah i don't know he he just is kind of he's just as really good um no no really uh no really real way around that um just kind of look to have complete complete control of an offense when he runs it and yeah i think it would have been really tough to justify uh a rebuild especially for around lillard who has just been uh, embraced the city and all that especially after alders left it would have been tough to say all right so you've been a great franchise player but now we're looking to rebuild around you so I don't really have any any issues with with restarting their view, especially because what it what it signals to Lillard and, and McCollum to a lesser extent. Yeah, it always is uh, interesting how other factors um, will manipulate roster construction and uh, team building decisions. Uh, doing something like that, where you know, I'm not saying it would have been better for them to let Nurkic leave or take a step back, but they wouldn't really. They're less likely to do it, considering the fact that. Um, Willard has meant so much to the city and they're in a, a smaller market where making the playoffs is really important um, to generate the extra revenue and it's just interesting and, and like um, it's crazy when you think about all the other things that go into it besides just like okay how what is the best way for us to move forward to one day eventually put together a championship contender so um, it's interesting but they probably did make the right decision because you know you only get a guy like Lillard once I mean, I don't know. I, yeah. I I think he's been criminally underrated the entire time, underappreciated the entire. I still say, and I will not change my mind on this, which is pretty stubborn. But I think that he is the closest thing to Steph Curry that there is, and I'm not saying he's in Steph's like galaxy, but there's nobody else that Ben. I mean, he just he crosses half court as well, and you gotta guard him. I mean, I will never get the image, and I know it's only one game. And I'm a Laker fan, so it was terrible. But March of 2018, I will never get the image of him hitting like four 30 foot threes. <laughs> he 10 points at home in the fourth quarter. And he, and oh, yep, yep. <laughs> it wasn't that the Blazers beat like Damian Lillard single handedly just beat the Lakers by hitting 30 foot pull ups. And he's so incredibly quick and just the bends of defense to as well. He just, he just can do whatever he wants, he can do whatever he wants on the court whenever whenever he wants and as soon as he crosses half court you have to consider guarding him because he can pull from anywhere and it's not that bad of a shot so in my mind he's just the closest thing that yeah i know yeah yeah i i think yeah i think he's an interesting case i'd say i'd say in terms of yeah the the offensive uh or at least three points i'd say it's him and and him and kemba um especially this year for kemba that he's shooting like 10 threes a game or something it's 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 ludicrous and awesome and all that um (laughs) But yeah, I, I, there's been a lot of rumblings that, that people want Dan to get traded or, or things like that. Um, and obviously, I think I'm a little biased because Lillard's obviously one of my favorite players. I'm a Blazers fan, but uh, I just have a really tough time seeing that. One, because the Blazers always seem to be solid. And two, because uh, kind of after what happened with Odin and Roy and then Aldridge kind of left. And Aldridge, um, well, he well he was uh, an, an awesome player for the Blazers and uh, did a lot of great things, especially delaying surgery on his thumb, whatever that one year was, and playing through it. Um, he never quite seemed to kind of 
rep the city and embrace the fans uh, the way Lillard has. And so I think it would be a really bad look um, if the Blazers uh, management was kind of like, well, we're not that good. Let's, let's trade this guy who's been nothing but awesome in the community and, and to fans and, and all that. Um, I think it would just be a really bad look for them. And obviously, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I, I definitely have a little bit of sub- subjectivity there, but I also think kind of living in Portland for most of my life gives me a unique perspective on that. And I just have a really tough time seeing Lillard get traded unless all of a sudden the Blazers are going to win 26 games or something. Um, which isn't really possible if, if Lillard's healthy and upright um, because he just seems to kind of increase uh, and elevate his, his teammates, whether it's on the court or off the court as a leader. So, yeah, he, he's awesome, and the Blazers look really good so far, and uh, I hope it keeps up because I, I don't want to have to keep dealing with these <laughs> these unsolicited rumors about Lillard going to the Lakers or uh, whoever, <laughs> else it, whoever else it may be. Um, just because it, it gets – I'm sure it's the same way with, with teams who other teams who have stars that – Everyone's put on the chopping block before or the trading block season before there there's any substantiated evidence. So yeah, it just gets it just gets a little tiring when when there's nothing to suggest that's the case and there's plenty of other things to talk about during the season at least. <laughs> there are plenty. Yes, that is a <laughs> storyline to push. Yeah, maybe, maybe in July you can talk about it, but when you got 30 teams doing 75 different things, you, there's no need to, to talk about will Lillard get traded? Will Walker get? Will Kemba Walker get traded? It's like. Well, let's just let's talk yeah, about I other things. Kemba, I mean, I think Kemba's a little different because he he is in his contract year, and they really like. I mean, you know, where 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 are they going? I mean, I don't know what the Blazers' ceiling is either, but I mean, the Hornets are a fringe playoff team in the Eastern Conference, where the Blazers are kind of crushing it right now. And um, <laughs> yeah, I just think the 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 one thing is that I think Kemba said he wants to resign, and too that like there's nothing to suggest that he's on the block and the trading block. So I think that definitely could. I understand why people talk about it, but I definitely think it could still irk a lot of Hornets fans who have an emotional connection to, to Lillard. But yeah, there's definitely more there's there's more credence to that argument than there is to the Lillard one, but I still think they're a little uh outlandish in their own right, if that makes sense. No, it does. Um I think I I I agree. They're different, but um it's just a narrative. There's there's other things. There's more important things to talk about. There's <laughs> they're actually playing games right now. So <laughs> Exactly. Maybe the trade deadline, maybe the trade deadline, but they're they're playing games. He's taking ten threes per game. You're right. It's insane. He's taking ten threes per game. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Um, but yeah, anyway, no. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm. I think I'm. So, sometime soon, I'm going to write a, a piece about about Kemba, assuming he continues to to ball out. We we had a, a really good, great piece of the step back uh, by Brian Harvey, kind of just more of like a kind of a a rosy uh, just piece. No 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 evidence or stats or anything. Just talking about how. How tremendous Kemba is, and uh, I think it was out, out on Monday on, on the step back. Uh, really good read. So, uh, but yeah, Kemba's Kemba's awesome. And he's just he's just firing, hucking him up from deep, um, which I just absolutely love. And they, and the Hornets actually look kind of decent, uh, aside from their god awful blowout to the, the Cavs on Tuesday. But yeah, uh, there's there's other things to write about with Kemba, and um, because Kemba is ridiculously awesome, and he almost beat the Sixers <laughs> twice. I think I think twice now. It's been. He didn't play very well in the first time they played, but uh, but the Hornets are now almost. Yeah, yeah, well, last week, but the 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 Sixers and Hornets now play a third time, and I think three weeks this Saturday. Um, it's really weird. They think they played three times last year after like February or March, <laughs> and now they played three times before December. Uh, it's just been it's really weird. It's like the the NBA is just like yeah, we're gonna we're gonna play the uh, we're gonna play a little uh, fake playoffs here between the Hornets and the Sixers. Uh, in the next eight months, it's been it's just been really funny to to see on the schedule. I swear, they, the two teams can't avoid each other, and the Hornets can't can't get a win. <laughs> I think they're zero and zero and five. They might be. I mean, they might win this next one, but uh, yeah, it's funny. They did they did the same thing with the Grizzlies and the Jazz. They played three times in the first twelve games. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> sure, get them all out of the way. Apparently, get it. Yeah, sure. Let's just uh, keep going here. And and the road team won every game. Go figure. <laughs> okay. Anyway, all right. So I think. Uh, um, we got we uh, accomplished a lot here. So um, I just want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to come on. And where can people find more of your work? Uh, yeah, so my main work will be at uh, the Athletic Philadelphia um, and Liberty Baller for the 76ers, which is general NBA thoughts. You can find me at the Step Back. It's part of fan side's NBA division. But yeah, that's 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 where we find my work. Um, I'll, I'll I'll have a piece or two out each week, um, which kind of depends on my schedule. But I try to get. A piece, a piece out every three or four days, um, which uh, generally doesn't lead itself to a lot of free time or sleep. But uh, <laughs> I like the way it is, and 
I'm healthy and upright, so I suppose that that is good enough for me. You have the youthful energy. Um, <laughs> also, I am going to go ahead and plug your Twitter handle, everybody. It is at Jack Frank underscore JJF. Follow Jackson. He's a great follow. He um, is quick on the draw with uh, putting up videos from games all over the league <laughs> on a nightly basis and showing you why Karis LeVert is the new superstar. <laughs> um, sad, sad things. That oh, yeah. Bert, not good, good, new, good news with the injury, though. Good, yeah, great good news, news with the injury. But no, seriously, everybody follow Jackson. Jackson's a great follow. So if you ever want just um, great, great pointed videos or thoughtful insight, Jackson's a great follow. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on. And hopefully we can do this soon again. All right. Yeah, for sure. This is fun. All right, everybody. Um, thanks for tuning in. And we will talk to you next time.